Eagles Entertainment. The journey to the draft is driven by AAA. AAA roadside is their strong side. Make AAA a part of your game day today. AAA, go ahead. With the 25th pick in the NFL draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select. You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Welcome to the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we've got an awesome weekend of games to look ahead of us here in college football, and we will kick things off looking at those matchups with Ben Fennell in Saturday Scouting, where this week we're going to break down some of those matchups. We've got a new mock draft to look at, and we'll highlight the traits that we value most at the free safety position. That will be a fun conversation, as always. After that, I catch up with Ben Solak from the Draft Network to talk about some of the players that are being mocked to the Eagles in a lot of mock drafts all around the internet, and also how those players would fit here in Philadelphia. And then we'll wrap things up with my buddy Ross Tucker. Pick six. We're going to pick some games once again, go head-to-head, as we always do every single week. Before we get the show started, again, best way to throw us your support, go on to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, leave us a comment. It's the best way. You want to give us a little gift for the holidays, that's the best way to throw us your support. All right, let's get things going. It's time. Kick things off with Ben Fennell and Saturday Scouting. It's time for Saturday Scouting. All right, well, let's get things going here on Saturday Scouting. And we'll start with uh, some big news in college football. Uh, once again, uh, Alabama head coach Nick Saban tests positive for COVID-19. Uh, he is symptomatic this time. Thankfully, just so far, mild symptoms uh, for the future Hall of Fame head coach. Um, last time it turned up as a false positive, and he was able to coach uh, that weekend against Georgia. This week against the Iron Bowl, uh, my guess is, is that will not be the case, uh, considering that he is symptomatic. So, um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, best wishes to uh, Nick Saban, um, you know, and hopefully he can recover uh, very, very soon. That's the big news, I would say, around college football as we record this Wednesday morning. But, Ben, let's get into some of the big matchups here this weekend because, as I mentioned, we got the Iron Bowl, but we've got a bunch of big rivalry games here this weekend in college football. We'll talk through a couple matchups. I'll let you kick things off. Uh, what's one big matchup you're looking forward to seeing this weekend? Well, this one's, uh, I don't know if it's a rivalry or not, but I don't think a lot of people are noticing how well this West Virginia defense is playing and how many NFL prospects are on this defense. You got the Stills brothers up front, but my eyes are on linebacker Tony Fields. He's heading to the Senior Bowl. He's the Arizona transfer, tackling machine, ball magnet, seems to always be around the ball, always around the line of scrimmage, mirroring the quarterback, QB spies, sub-rushing, can mirror running backs on the second level. But he plays Oklahoma this week. Lincoln Riley loves to mess with the eye discipline of second-level defenders. So this one's not so much a physical test for him. I want to see how he handles the mental test, the reading plays, maybe getting caught up with backfield action because we see that a lot on Sundays now. So this is a big game for me and Tony Fields and kind of rating him as a prospect. Right now I have him at linebacker five or six with a good performance against an Oklahoma team. He might be LB3-4 and a solid day two pick. And you look at him too, from a not only from an eye discipline standpoint, but when he's one on one in the hole with Ramon J. Stevenson, whew, like that guy's a train. We talked about him earlier this week. Uh, that'll be an interesting matchup for sure. I'll stick with a similar kind of look here: Notre Dame against North Carolina, uh, and this one's an interesting one too because I think when you look at both of their uh, you know abilities in pass protection and in the pass game, Chas Surratt, one of his best traits, outstanding blitzer from the second level. So you look at him against Kyron Williams in pass protection, the Notre Dame running back. He has been outstanding this season. So not only can these guys play sideline to sideline, Kyron Williams has been a great running back 
back for the Irish this year. He's done a lot of great things uh, downhill on the perimeter. He can catch the ball a little bit, but namely in pass protection, I'm really, really excited uh, mm-hmm. to see Surratt against Kyron Williams because Surratt, uh, I know I posted a clip over the summer uh, of him putting uh, uh, Travis Etienne, the Clemson running back, uh, on his backside uh, with a blitz. I'm interested to see how Kyron Williams holds up in this game. I I really thought about taking North Carolina uh, as an upset here. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. uh, Hey, I was at the game last year where they nearly upset Clemson. I'm going with the North Carolina upset here. I know uh, Notre Dame's been a darling this year, but the other side of the ball, don't change the channel because North Carolina, those two running backs, Michael Carter, Javante Mm -hmm. Williams, they're going to give Notre Dame linebackers all they can handle. But we're going to go over to the Big Ten here. Illinois looked pretty good last week now that they got Brandon Peters back under center at quarterback. The Michigan transfer, he's been in and out of lineup with injury. The whole lineup is built to transfers of a who's who around the country. But Josh Emator Baby, he leaped, I think it was 44 or 45 inches out of high school, had an impressive above-the-rim catch last week. They play Ohio State. And it could be kind of an upset special type of game that Illinois has a lot of interesting talent. They looked so much more confident last week against Nebraska with Peters under center. I kind of like Illinois here and Lovey Smith. They might give Ohio State all they can handle. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting matchup, certainly to keep an eye on there in the Big Ten. Uh, I am going to go to the SEC to that Iron Bowl that I referenced earlier. Look at the oversized wide receiver, Seth Williams for Auburn. This is a guy that can play above the rim, just like what you were just saying earlier. Uh, Seth Williams has been that kind of guy for the Auburn offense. Going up against this Alabama secondary, namely the corner, Patrick Sertan Jr., I'm excited for this matchup. It's one that I'll certainly be watching when I go back to study Seth Williams. And even watching Sertan, I think this is going to be a big matchup for him. His ability to go up, climb the ladder, and finish, I think will be big against that Auburn uh, towering receiver on the perimeter. They've got some speed. Anthony Schwartz there uh, for Auburn as well. They've got some playmakers on that side of the ball. But Seth Williams is certainly the name uh, to keep an eye on when he's going up against Patrick And Josh Job on the other side of Patrick Sertan has a lot of good size, a good press corner as well. It seems like Alabama always has that kind of other corner, whether it's like Anthony Averett, you know, or Levi Watt. Wallace, you know, opposite of Marlon Humphreys. They have a lot of interesting depth. They may not have been on the field a whole lot, but Josh Job on the other side of uh – uh, what's his name? Sertan is another interesting NFL prospect. You know, it's funny. I was talking with somebody earlier today and they asked, you know, oh, well, you know, Alabama DBs, they kind of scare me. You know, they, they haven't always worked out. But then I was, I was I kind of went back and just looked at the list of the, the DBs that have come out of Alabama over the last couple of years, just going back to 2017. You look at Eddie Jackson, one of the better safeties in football. Marlon Humphrey, one of the richest corners in football. Levi Wallace was undrafted, became an early starter for the Bills, has turned into a nice player. Anthony Averett, now a starter for the Ravens on the opposite side uh, of Marlon Humphrey or next to Marlon Humphrey. Minka Fitzpatrick, one of the top safeties in football. Deontay Thompson turned into a key role player and starter for the Cardinals in that secondary. And then Xavier McKinney this year, obviously uh, injured in preseasons. We they may not yet. all hit their ceiling, but they all have such high safe floors, in yeah. my opinion. You know they're going to be good special teams players. Players. You know, they could play NFL ready with the scheme and the press man, you know, acclimate down there in Alabama. I just I, I think they're just the safer floor players. But it's interesting, though, but when you get past that cutoff of 2017 and you go back 2016, 15, now you're going into like Cyrus Jones didn't work out with the Patriots. Uh, Landon Collins only was one contract with the with the Giants. Ha ha Clinton Dix, one contract with the Packers. Vinny Sanceri, D. Milner, Mark Barron. It, you start getting into those names. It's kind of interesting that, you know, from that point, see, there's like this line of demarcation between 16 and 17. 
which also kind of coincides with when Kirby Smart left Alabama to go to Georgia. That was in the 2016 to 2017. Uh, that's a weird coincidence, but uh, kind of interesting. Uh, just kind of looking at those Alabama DBs, I don't feel like that narrative necessarily uh, plays anymore. Uh, like Jared Jared Maiden, who is undrafted. Yeah. Another, another one of those sub-package guys that wasn't a star, but a reliable player. He's on the Niners practice squad. He's the next one that I think will uh, work his way into the lineup. All right, let's get to our mock draft roundup here. And we'll, we're going to pick a mock draft. And we're going to, you know, typically we're looking at who the Eagles select and who else is going in that area. We're going to take a little bit of a different spin here uh, this time because every single mock draft has the Eagles taking <laughs> Notre Dame linebacker Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. And we are going to talk about him later in the show with Ben Solak. But for this one, I wanted to take a look at Ryan Wilson from CBS Sports, his latest mock draft. We'll just take a couple of picks that stand out to both of us. And, I, and I'll start things off. Cowboys, number four overall. They take Michigan pass rusher Quiddy Pay. This is about as high, Ben, as I've seen Quiddy Pay uh, go in a mock draft. And uh, obviously, I know you've you've watched the tape on him almost every single week this year, if not every single game. And I know that he has really, really stood out to you. Um, but for him to go up that high, I think speaks a lot to the way that he's played so far this season. Was not that player to me uh, going off the, the 2019 film. But I know that you've seen it. He's been a very dominant presence for that Michigan front. Well, the visual of Quiddy Pay stock is the Price is Right yodel game where that guy's just climbing that mountain and working his way up. It seems like he's been ascending the, the last couple of months. Michigan hasn't been looking good, you know, in the win total and on the field, but Quiddy Pay individually has been one of the terrors of college football, really tough to block. At number four is a little rich, but he's going to have that or uh, be in that conversation of being the number one pass rusher off the board, whether it's him or Gregory Rousseau or um, maybe somebody else, uh, you know, not those two, but we're still figuring out who that number one pass rusher is. It's a highly coveted position by NFL teams. Hmm. What was your first, uh, your big takeaway here? Well, seeing Zach Wilson, QB three, seems like that's the way it's trending as well. At number five overall to the Washington football team. Sounds like they're going to hit reset on the quarterback position. Zach Wilson at number five. That's another uh, player that's the highest I've seen him, but a guy that's been trending in his trajectory of his stock has just been soaring uh, through 2020. I'm going to stick at the quarterback position here. The Patriots going quarterback at number 12 overall with Alabama's Mac Jones ahead of Trey Lance. And I, I think that's really, really interesting. I have not studied Mac Jones yet. I'm interested to get, do you feel like Mac Jones is that kind of player? We're talking like top I 15. do. And it's not so much Mac Jones at 12 is the news. It's Mac Jones ahead of Trey Lance yeah, exactly. is the news, yep. in my opinion. I, we all know quarterbacks get pushed up. I think this is going to be a year like we had, uh, you know, with Christian Ponder and Jake Lockard and Blaine Gabbard, and could be end up five quarterbacks in the top fifteen. The way it's kind of trending, but mm. I like Mac Jones. I think he's a safe player, and he's kind of been the one that's just sitting there, ho hum, looking to the left and the right, like, "What about me, guys?" All I do is show up and throw the ball over the yard and get wins in the SEC. What about me, guys? And it seems like he's that one that's forgotten until we get into the draft cycle. Now he's a coveted prospect that's all of a sudden QB4 and leapfrogging guys like Trey Lance. What do you like here for your second takeaway? I like J.C. Horn, man. That number 11 overall, you know, cornerback three right after Sertan and Caleb Farley. Uh, Virginia Tech seems like he's that next press corner. Just like the way C.J. Henderson flew up boards last year, ended up being, uh, you know, somewhere between 10, I don't know, is he eight to the Jacksonville Jaguars? So, but something like that, yep. Anyways, Detroit, once again, going press corner. They took Akuda number three overall last year. They find the other corner now in J.C. Horn. Those are two big press corners. 
Now it's just a matter of is Matt Patricia going to hang on and be there next year to, you know, give that defense one more year in a scheme. Yeah, it's uh, certainly an interesting one. Do you feel that Horn is a guy that's worthy of the you know top, obviously his number 11 there, a top 15 pick? I do. And uh, the way Dane kind of formulated it to me, he's an Aqib Tlaib style of player. Mm. Uh, he's very feisty. He might end up being a better pro. He's a little inconsistent on tape at South Carolina. You're at, you go through a gauntlet of receivers in the SEC. He's taken his lumps, believe me, whether it's LSU last year, those Alabama receivers. But it's a learn-on-the-job position. And if you need a big press corner, he looks like he looks like the part. He's big, he's long, he's tough, he contributes in run support, gets his hands on footballs and force and fumbles. I like him. He's a little feisty, a little grabby, gets a lot of penalties, but I kind of like that at a corner. So if you need a press corner, which I'm not sure the Lions do because they have Jeffrey Okuda, but if you, if you don't have two, I guess you, you got to go get that second one. My third takeaway, I'm going to go later in the round to the Jets at number 25. It's always interesting because the Jets have two first-round picks. They're always number one. They're always going to take Trevor Lawrence in almost every mock draft. Who do they pair with Trevor Lawrence? We've seen Travis Etienne uh, in this spot. Here they take Minnesota wide receiver Rashad Bateman, and I love it. I, I love pairing a guy like Bateman uh, with Trevor Lawrence. They already have Denzel Mims there, so uh, a couple of big targets. That's what he's used to throwing to at Clemson. They, they like those big towering receivers out in the perimeter. You get Bateman, you get Denzel Mims there with Lawrence. I think that's a, a really interesting combination there uh, for the Jets moving forward. Uh, what was your takeaway there to round things out? Yeah, uh, last, just uh, kind of looking at the 20s here. Very low year for interior defensive linemen. I see Barrymore and J2 Faley squeezing there at 27. A little bit of a run on receivers. You go Waddle, Devontae Smith, Rondell Moore, Rashad Bateman. Back to back to back to back. Four straight receivers there in the 20. And then another year where the first running back off the board is number 32. The very last pick in the first round last year with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire to the Chiefs. This year, Travis Etienne to the Steelers, which is interesting kind of a, uh, a countering style to go with, you know, James Conner and Benny Snell. Travis Etienne, much more of that slashing type uh, to uh, kind of pair with those bruisers. And I think of Etienne, you know, the running in the – they run a lot of gap scheme offense. To me, like that fits him perfectly. Like, you know, yeah. you get him on counter, you get him on power, you just get him going downhill, a little bit of the, some of the pin pool stuff that they'll do. Uh, I think Etienne fits. Stylistically, uh, kind of not that different from a Le'Veon Bell when he was right. in Pittsburgh. That's still kind of slow to the line. I run a little upright, a little slow, a little patient, and then can put his foot in the ground and dart through the line of scrimmage. Uh, I could see him kind of fitting into that scheme pretty well. He's got more of that top end. And juice that uh, absolutely that, that you want to get him involved in the screen game too in the past game just like uh, Le'Veon was as well no question so uh, like I said the Eagles uh, at 19 in that draft taking Jeremiah Owusu-Kormo we'll talk about uh, JOK a little bit later in the show let's wrap this one up we're gonna go under the hood where every single week we pick one position and three traits that matter to both of us uh, when evaluating it this week we're going to talk about post-safety, the free safety for most people. Um, I, to me, it's important to say that obviously every team utilizes safeties a little bit differently. Some it's very easily delineated between free safety, strong safety. Hey, the free safety is always going to play in the post. Strong safety is going to play close to the line of scrimmage. Much you know, For a lot of teams, it might be left safety and right safety where they are interchangeable and guys are moving all over the place. Some people like a safety to be able to play in the slot often. And that's It's getting more and more like that in today's NFL, but – for us in this discussion, we're talking about the guys that are playing in the post. What are the what is the what are the traits you're looking for if that's what you're looking for? Someone to play in the deep part of the field. And I'll kind of kick things off uh, for this one. And I'm gonna go for me. It's mental processing. It's your ability to key and diagnose. You cannot have 
a lot of mental missteps when you're playing the safety spot. While you are further away from the ball and you say, oh, well, you've got some time to be able to overcome some of that. You really don't. <laughs> Today's NFL, with all the speed that people throw at you uh, on the perimeter, down the field, you need those safeties to be reliable with their eyes, being able to understand what the offense is about to do, and put yourself in a position to make a play on the ball. So, to me, I'm willing to over, you know, to say, all right, I don't need the the four four speed and you know the the outstanding physical traits. If you've got great eyes, I think you can overcome some of that. And to me, that's why I think you see a lot of guys that are on day three or undrafted free agents that 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 are able to hit at the safety spot because you know people are maybe the the mental processing you're overlooking that a little bit when it comes to the draft process to me that's the number one thing I'm looking for at the safety position and certainly different fits and styles for that back end safety whether you're a single high team so that you're more of a center fielder playing in the middle of the field typically playing at 20 to 25 yards or if you're a split safety team playing half field responsibility, typically sitting at maybe 15 to 18 yards. So scheme base will also determine what style of player and if you need a trait uh, to weigh heavily or, or less uh, than another style of scheme. But I'm right there with you, Fran. That back end player, you have to have the mental process. You have to be able to feel and flow to the action. You have to have a feel for offensive design and how they're attacking you. That's your eyes, your key, your diagnose, your instincts, that first step. You're on the back of the defense. It's all in front of you. So understanding the flow to action and how you're being attacked and diagnosing plays with your eyes and processing first and foremost, that initial movement to the play, that initial flow is so important for the backside players. And we see all the time, I'm going to kind of just steal this from you and go right into the next point. In that first initial action is all about your angle and pursuit. In, in uh, you know, in inserting into the play. And it's you we see every week that back end player not taking proper angles to the football. And just when you think you're not involved in the play, suddenly you're that last line of defense and your angle is suddenly highlighted, whether you took a good angle or a bad angle. So I think that's such a combination trait, being able to key, diagnose your instincts, your feel and flow for the action, and then taking that proper pursuit angle. Uh, particularly to start those first two, three yep. steps in the play. And that's why to me, like when we're, cause that is the angles are, was my second thing that I look for. And to me, you could pair that with mental processing my first one, but it's just so important to me that I had to keep it separate. And when you're talking about moving a corner to safety, Oh, you know, he doesn't run well. We're going to move him to safety. That's the biggest hurdle to climb. If a guy's not used to seeing the game from that depth, from that point, from that vantage point, it, the, the, the taking good angles part is the hardest hill to overcome. You know, just talking with guys uh, that have made that transition. So we're not just talking about uh, taking it in the pass game, but even in the run game, running the alley. We talked about, you know, guys that can run the alley earlier this week, right? The they, funny thing, the Fran, that's what my mind goes right to, yeah. is the is the run defense pursuit angles. And as you're talking, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I re- we really should mention the angles in the pass game. No and question. It's funny, how, it's funny how it's both. Yeah, yeah, because if you're uh, a guy playing in the post and there's a vertical route being thrown outside the numbers, do you have that ability? To, and this goes to natural ball skills and, and tracking as well. But do you have that ability to get to the catch point efficiently? Can, can you track that ball, get to the catch point, make a then you get to the you get there and you have the ability to make a play and you know go up, climb the ladder, and all that stuff. But you're not your ball skills might be great. You might have the best hands of any safety in the history of the game. But if you can't get there, what good does it do? It doesn't do anything. It doesn't do you anything. So, and it's the same thing as a tackler. If you're as, as big and strong and powerful and explosive as uh, anybody in the NFL, 
but you take a bad angle, that that play strength is boot. You're you, literally it's done, it does nothing for you. So uh, the ability to take good angles uh, downhill and sideline to sideline to me just a huge huge part of playing the safety spot. Uh, what is your second? It's got to be tackling. You're the yeah. last line of defense, and that safety position a lot of times determines the explosive play. Whether it's going to be an eight to ten yard pedestrian gain or a 70-yard touchdown. A lot of times that's determined by the ability to tackle on the last line of defense, which is usually that free safety or that back-end player. And a lot of times your ability to leverage those plays on the back-end are all about your pursuit angles, first and foremost, your read, your key, your diagnose, that first step, and attacking the ball carrier and leveraging uh, the angle properly. But at the end of the day, you got to get the ball carrier on the ground. Yep. And I saw a couple quotes from Eric Weddle talking a few years ago about being that back-end free safety. And he said, you know what? Sometimes it's not pretty. Sometimes I'm absolutely trucked and walloped by a big 230-pound running back in the open field. I took a huge brunt of contact, but I got him down. Sometimes I'm grabbing their ankle and holding on for dear life, but you know what? I got him down. Hmm. Just that mentality at all costs you know, scratch and claw and grab and hold and whatever you have to do, get the ball carrier down because that last line of defense determines the pedestrian gains from the 70-yard highlights you see on Monday morning on SportsCenter. And to me, that's why the th- my third trait was run defense. And you would never say, oh, you know, you really need run defense from a, a free safety. If you're going to start, yeah, you better believe that I need you. Got you need to be able to be a good run defender. So uh, your ability to come up, finish from depth, and we talked about the difference in uh, you know what does run defense look like from all these different positions, all these different safety spots. If you're playing in the post versus in the slot or in the box, it's going to be different kinds of skills that are needed to be an effective run player. Uh, to me, if you're playing in the post, you have to take a good angle. And then you've got to come down with the right temperament, with the right level of athleticism, break down, come to balance, finish one-on-one as a tackler. So you need the, the, uh, the attitude, the toughness, the competitiveness, but then also the play strength and technique to be able to get that, that guy down to the ground. People will overlook it and say, oh, it's, it's not that important. Guess what? You can see that you can, there's a long list of guys that play that were drafted high, that were drafted in the first two, three rounds at free safety. Um, they say, oh, yeah, well, you know, they weren't great tacklers, but they could finish on the ball. They're great athletes that never started, got out of the league quickly, or, or they did play and they cost their team early. And I think that was um, you know, one of the big examples I can think of. And, and this guy has turned into a, a fine run defender, but early in his career, and I remember him coming out of Utah, Marcus Williams, he was a second-round pick by, uh, by the Saints coming out of Utah. And my big question with him was his ability to finish as a tackler one-on-one early in his career until he got bigger and until he got stronger. Saints go on you know, late in the year, doesn't really show up too, too often. Then what happens? Stephon Diggs makes a catch along the sideline. He misses the tackle, and it turns into one of the biggest comebacks in NFL playoff history. The Vikings come to Lincoln Financial Field instead of the Saints, and the Eagles go on to beat the Vikings and go to the Super Bowl. But the reason the Vikings are there is because of a Marcus Williams missed tackle. To me, tackling, run defense, extremely important, no matter what kind of position you play at the safety spot. What was your third? uh, Yeah, absolutely. And just in a general, we want this at every position, but I think the safety position is just that much more important. And just a combination of speed and fluidity. Mm. And that position is on the back end. You sit back, you survey, you read, you react. But friend, you are never stale. You're never static. You're never not moving. You always have to make these decisions and adjustments while moving on the fly. You have to be able to change those directions, change your angles, change your intent, change your pursuit 
using your athleticism and doing it in a fluid fashion. Mm. And last night I was watching TCU safety Trayvon Morig, and they rolled him down into the box. He was guarding the slot. He then had to turn and run with the receiver. It was a double move. So he broke down, then had to rerun uh, down the field. And it was just like there was four different moments of movement patterns in the play constantly moving, rolling down, turning and running, breaking down, rerunning with the double move, finding the ball. It's just such a fluid position. And so many times you're changing things on the fly, whether you're reading the run for play action, and then all of a sudden you have to retreat and get back and split the difference between one and two and know how to break on the ball when it's in the air and take the proper angle. So, you know, all those things between the ears and the keying and diagnosing and the tackling the angle but it's all on the move. So you have to be able to use all that in combination with being a fluid athlete. I love it. What is it that separates in your mind the elite players, the top end players in the league from the good players at this position? I think it's the ball skills. I think it's the ones that don't panic when that ball is in the air. And there's so many different uh, you know, nuances to that, whether it's the contact points and just understanding not getting too much contact and creating illegal contact, pass interference at the catch point. A lot of that is a savviness of playing the ball. We see a lot of contact down the field and DPIs because of those players on the back end not playing the ball properly, hmm. not because they want to be physical, just because they're misjudging the ball in the air. So the ones that understand ball trajectory not panicking when that ball is in the air, understanding how to feel, find, and cover while tracking the ball, and then the ones that can make the plays on the ball. So not just you know putting yourself in position to get there with the savviness, but the ones that make those plays once you get there, that's what separates those B plus, A minus, into the Ed Reeds of the world. Yeah, I would say that 100% agree. It's what I talked about. I was like, you have the guys that it's a – must have trait for me like the the angles and the mental processing but what then takes you next level is that ability it once you're there finish make the play it's a big play league you got to make them don't give them up if you can make them on the defensive side that's big time as well so i 100 percent agree with you uh on that one let's go to the players that we've watched in this class that best fit the mold of what we're talking about you know there we and we it's funny because we just talked about this with guys that are running the alley but uh is there a, a player or two that uh come to mind for you when you're talking about post safeties uh in this draft yeah i think there's a couple around college football in my mind immediately goes to usc's isaiah polamau who's 6'4 210 one of the longest rangiest you know back end players he covers a lot of ground being that post safety but some of these big 12 safeties man it's open spaces out there it's a, it's a wide open offense a lot of double moves. I just mentioned TCU safety Trayvon Moray, one of the most fluid natural cover safeties uh, in the in the country, really. There's other guys, Oklahoma State's Colby Harvell Pell is a big nickel, always playing in retreat, can find the ball. Caden Stearns at Texas, not the biggest guy, not really a box safety, but great ball skills, really fluid on the back end. Or maybe a guy a lot of people don't know yet. We've heard his name going to the Senior Bowl at an Illinois State, didn't have a season. Christian Upoff, is 6'3", big, long, rangy, yep. a lot like from the way kind of Jeremy Chin was last year at Southern Illinois. This guy's big and long and covers a lot of ground on the back end. So it's a bunch of guys around college football, and, and there's plenty more. We could keep going, friend. I, I liked Apoff. I, I studied four games of him uh, like a week or two ago. Uh, he's going to the Senior Bowl. 
I like him as a future starter at the free safety spot. He's 6'3", 195. He's going to need a little bit more play strength, that pack a little bit more on there. But uh, he is a really interesting player, and I think that definitely he's got some starting traits to work with at the next level. Uh, to me, just a couple other guys I'd throw in there. Um, you know, I would look at Hamza Nazardine. I think he's kind of uh, got that multi-dimensional skill set that he's big and strong enough to play in the box, but he's also explosive enough to come downhill. I, I'd like to see he comes in a little bit hot sometimes, and that gets back to the angles we've talked about. The other guy that I think a lot of people will, will mention is Andre Sisco from Syracuse, right? Because he, he's got that playmaking ability. He's got great range. He can finish on the ball. He, he's just so up and down, you know, whether you're talking about as a tackler or with his angles and uh, the mental processing, he'll, you know, take a lot of missteps as well in the back end. So, Coach, some teams are going to look at that a lot differently. I think a lot of coaches are going to say, I, I don't know if I can play him right now. There might be a lot of people that say, yeah, I want his playmaking ability in my secondary. And then another young player to keep an eye on just in his first year as a starter, Josh Proctor from Ohio State, uh, a guy I talked about in the offseason as a name to watch in the future. Uh, this is a guy I think that's got free safety written all over him uh, moving to the NFL. So three I really good names those, there, Fran, yeah, for sure. And, and Oregon's got a bunch as well. Javon Holland, yep. young kid, Verone McKinley the third, really bunch like of McKinley, fluid yeah. athletic players on the back end there too. Yep. No question. There's a bunch of guys uh, at the safety spot. It's a lot of fun to be able to watch all these guys. Well, Ben, thanks so much once again uh, for chopping it up here on the Journey of the Draft podcast driven by AAA. We'll catch up with you early next week. It's time for Mr. Relevant. Well, excited to welcome back here to Mr. Relevant here on the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA, Ben Solak, a senior college football writer over at the Draft Network and co-host of the Locked On NFL Draft podcast. Ben, thanks for coming back, man. Yeah, of course, friend. I'm always glad to be here. Sleigh bells are ringing. That means draft season's inbound. It's always fun to, fun to see, fun to get ready. All right, we're getting into the last month here of uh, the NFL season, which means that mm-hmm. a lot of fans all around the league are going to be char- starting to ingest all this NFL draft content. So uh, we're going to do a little bit of an Eagles focus here, though, because uh, there are a handful of names that I feel like are consistently mocked to the Eagles there's one in particular that is in like every single mock draft, and we will start with him. I want to get your thoughts on a bunch of these guys, but we're going to start with Notre Dame linebacker Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on your evaluation of him in college, how you feel he projects to the NFL. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to hear your thoughts because I'll be very frank. I'm usually a regular listener, but busy season. I haven't listened in a couple of weeks, so I don't know how you feel about some of these guys. No. But with, with, with Joker there, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, this is the sort of player in the summer you say, oh, if he checks box A, B, and C, then we might be looking at a first rounder. And then he comes out this year. He looks a lot heavier. A big big part of his evaluation was you know being listed at 215 last year. He looks more around 230 this year. Uh, and then being able to show a good box presence, despite the fact that he's regularly playing at the overhang, at, at, over the slot receiver, over number three. It's funny, Kyle Krabs, who I know has been on the show before, is one of yep. our scouts at TDN calls him, you know, a more polished Davian Taylor, a high instinct Davian Taylor. Taylor, obviously the Eagles third round pick out of Colorado last year was a day two pick because athletically he was amazing, but he just hasn't played that much football. And so you knew he kind of had a, a developmental timeline in front of him. And I like that. I, 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 that's, I think that's a solid comparison. So to me, I still want to see Owusu Koromoa move at, at a weight at the combine. That's still a box that I, I need to check for him. I want to prove the concept that he's got at least box size, even if he is a will linebacker and he's usually outside of the box. I want to prove that he has that size to be more than just kind of like a quasi safety. But film-wise, he's he's done everything you'd like for him to see this year. So there's, there's still that outstanding question of just how dense is this guy? How is he going to hold up with NFL strength? But if 
if, if, if you're looking at a 230-pound athlete, then I, I do think he's a potential first-round player. Might be a little bit after the Eagles are picking, and we know that the Eagles also may not want the, a second-level run-defending linebacker player in, in the first round. But if he's like Davian Taylor, we know that he's, he's got what they like. And that's what I think is interesting. And I'm glad that you brought that comparison up because I wanted to ask you, like, how different is he in your mind from Davion Taylor, who obviously the Eagles uh, just drafted? I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on that. But uh, you just kind of explained that. So I don't even need to ask the follow up. I, I think he's really interesting because you obviously mm-hmm. look. The athleticism, the range, the explosive ability, and not just in the in open space, but you see him it just explodes, explode late and finish on ball carriers. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's a really explosive, violent tackler. At times, I just think he's a little bit slow to key and diagnose against the run, especially when he's when he's lined up inside, and that's going to be the transition, right? Because he's mm-hmm. not going to be a slot player. He's not going to be an overhang player more often than not in the NFL. So I'm really interested to just continue to watch more and more. He's going to be a guy I end up watching a lot. And it's almost it's similar because you know, we talk about evaluating safeties. You have to watch a lot of safety uh, just to get a feel for him. I feel like Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa is going to be that kind of guy. I want to watch as right. many tapes as possible of this guy just to really get a good sense uh, of his ability to make that transition to the NFL. Yeah, and the thing with that, which is funny, and you don't think about it as an evaluator, but if Owusu-Koromoa played linebacker, he'd react to pretty much every play. With where he plays, he's only racking the half a field, right? And he's an overhang. He's a over number two. So if the run's going the other way, that pursuit. You know what I mean? Like, you got to watch double the film to get the same amount of volume as if you were yeah. kind of a traditional stack linebacker. So I, I agree with you, absolutely. Yeah. He's he's interesting. If you draft him, you got to know what you're doing. you got to figure him out. And that, that can be a tough ask. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's going to be a really interesting case study. We say this every year because there's guys like this every year. But he's going to be another one. He's going to be another interesting case study, uh, certainly just to watch how he projects to the NFL. I want to stay to the linebacker spot. And I, I've only seen him mock the Eagles a couple times because – he was seen coming into the year as a blue-chip player, uh, and this is Alabama linebacker Dylan Moses. I know that this year, from what I've been told, I have not studied Moses yet off 2020, but from what I've been told, the film hasn't been as great as that. But I'm interested to get your thoughts on Dylan Moses, how he projects to the NFL, and how he would fit here in Philadelphia. Yeah, so uh, you know, if we want to get what the narrative is on Dylan Moses, Moses gets uh, an offer from Alabama and LSU as an eighth grader, right? So we kind of knew this guy coming out had that that hero storyline coming in. He starts as a, as a uh, as a freshman and as a sophomore, 2017-2018. He's just outside of this world. I mean, he's crazy good. 2019, he's going to be transitioning to Mike. He has the ACL injury during fall camp doesn't play the whole season. Then he comes into his senior season and he's moving from the will to the mic and he's coming off of injury. Yeah, his 2020 film hasn't been as good as his 2018 film, but his 2018 film was nuts, right? Like it was yes. top five, <laughs> top 10 pick. What are we talking about here? And he's, he's got a, a position switch in a COVID-affected camp while coming off of injury. If his 2020 film had been as good as his 2018 film, this guy would have not been human. You know, like he, like with, with what he was up against, I, don't, I, I still see a player who athletically looks like a first-round player. And then on top of that, has shown film, has shown tape, has shown responsibilities and feeling of a first-round player in terms of the mental aspects and, and, and how he carries himself, how he prepares himself, technique. And so 
I, I'm aware that we've got a 2020 year that's going to put more question marks in Moses's film if he had just been healthy for 2019 or if he had opted out. Absolutely, that's there, and we got to reconcile with that. But I still see the athlete that if you're drafting a linebacker, he needs to be on the field for three downs. He needs to be impact against the pass and man and zone cover. Blitzing as well. Bill Moses used to play freaking edge for mm. Alabama just like for fun his freshman year. You know what I mean? Like this, yep. we've still got that player. We still have that profile and that foundation. So to me, that that's a player you're willing to take in the first round. Medical checks are important for Moses. The conversation between him and Owusu Koromoa is fascinating because two wildly different players in terms of their responsibilities. What are you going to prioritize? Who's the future of your linebacker position in Philadelphia? You know, TJ Edwards, Davian Taylor, Nate Gary, who are you sure you're going to be keeping around? And then who are the gaps next to them that you need to fill with a rookie kind of helps solve that question. I just, I love this linebacker group overall. I mean, you're looking at, obviously, Micah Parsons is an alien, but then you look at Dylan Moses, you look at Jeremiah Usu-Koromoa, uh, you look at uh, Chaz Surratt, Nick Bolton, uh, Jabril Cox. It's a, it's, a, it's a really fun group of linebackers this year, and there's a couple other guys I think you could throw into that same mix. A couple other Alabama players I want to hit you with, and I'll, I'll ask you this guy, these guys in a dual question. Devontae Smith. From Alabama, Jalen Waddle from Alabama. To me, after Jeremiah Owusu Koromoa, it's these two guys that I, I'm seeing the most often. How do you like both of them overall in terms of their transition, and how do you like their fit here with the Eagles? Right. So the fit with the Eagles right now, when it comes to uh, receiver, is if you're good, come. <laughs> it's about as simple as that. Like obviously, this team's had uh, problems at wide receiver for a couple of seasons now, been struggling to get production, and so. You, you don't want to get too wrapped up into things like fit and, and, and deployment. This was obviously a big conversation for Eagles fans between Rager, who's currently on the team, and Justin Jefferson last year and kind of figuring out who the Eagles were going to like best and how they're going to fit them in. You just need talent. No wide receiver in college football is more talented than Devonta Smith, right, in terms of, of college-level technique production three levels what they do and how they do it Devonta Smith's a pro playing at the college level could have come out last year that would have been true this year it, it remains the same Smith's right now listed at 175 and the, and the history of sub 180 pound receivers in the league is not good this Eagles team obviously is only a few years removed from bringing in one of the smallest running backs in history and Donnell Pumphrey and seeing that his size was prohibited to him being successful in the league and so with Devonta Smith at 19 you're taking a swing at an outlier historically based off of his size, assuming he comes in at around 180. And it's funny because a lot of those outliers, Emmanuel Sanders, T.Y. Hilton, John Brown, are guys with really impressive game-breaking speed. It's going to be important to see how fast Smith is at that weight and how, how that can help you feel more confident in that evaluation. He's your possession receiver. Third and five, there's nobody on your team more than Devonta Smith. On first and 10, a little wide receiver screen, Jalen Waddle's the guy you want on your team because the the running back-like ability, the ball-in-hand ability with Jalen Waddle is insane. And that's not to take away anything from him as a route runner, as a deep threat. He can do both of those things. I think his ball tracking has improved from last year into this year, which is a big deal for his deep ball ability. But when you when you watch this guy on kick returns, when you watch him on screens, that's when you truly realize that this is a, a potentially special talent and a special player. Jalen Waddle is not playing for the rest of Alabama's season because he's coming off of the injury. That means you got to check the box athletically and check the medical uh, the medical red flags, make sure that he's healthy and you expect him to be healthy for his rookie contract. But this is a dichotomy here between playmaking and, and reliability, you know, explosiveness versus a possession receiver. And I said, you know, the Eagles don't need to be going too much into fits and, and figuring out how they're going to get three on the field, so on and so forth. You just want talent. But that's going to be that conversation that you have when, when you 
when you evaluate Smith and evaluate Waddle, you're going to ask them to do different things on a down-to-down basis. You're not going to ask Smith to be making explosive plays with the ball in his hands. You're not going to be asking Waddle to win contested catches eight yards over the middle of the field. They're different players in that way. So it depends on, on what you and your scouting staff prioritizes. So I want to go from the skill position players in the SEC on the offensive side and go over to the defensive side because uh, there, are, there are a couple corners at the top that I, I love personally, and that's Patrick Sertan Jr. from Alabama, Caleb Farley from Virginia Tech. There's another guy that now, especially since he's declared for the draft and he's opted out of the rest of the season, from South Carolina, J.C. Horn, who was a former pro bowler, uh, Joe Horn, wide receiver, his son. All right, so he's in South Carolina. He has opted into this draft. I'm sure I asked Ben this earlier, and I'm going to ask you this now. Do you feel that J.C. Horn is in that mix in the, in the middle part, you know, top end uh, of the first round? And how do you view him moving forward to the NFL? Yeah, it's funny. I, I told Trev the other day uh, on Locked on NFL Draft on our, our draft podcast, J.C. Horn might not be from Philly, but he's from Philly because he's a mean, angry dude playing corner. Like, he is <laughs> in your face, aggressive, letting you know how this game's going to go for four quarters. You know, he has a style to him that would appeal to this city it appeals to me you know he's a fun dude to watch that physicality up at the line of scrimmage press man coverage is as interesting for philadelphia when you consider what changes they've made on defense with the addition of darius slay after acquiring slay from uh detroit jim schwartz gave the press where he said we're gonna probably play more man and they have throughout the 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 2020 season played more man coverage than they did in previous years if you're looking for a corner two opposite slay another true outside corner they've had avante mattis who's obviously been in the slot here before then jc horn is a good option for you when i watched jc horn in 2019 I, i thought that the stiffness was worrisome i thought that at times his transitions were limited, and that was going to matter at the NFL level. In 2020, he's had a very productive season. I still feel like he's not the transitional sort of athlete that you typically look for in a round one corner. That's not prohibitive to being successful at the NFL level, but it means you have to be so good at the line, so smart with your feet, so physical. If you make a mistake, it's going to be very difficult to recover. And with young corners, we're seeing right now, you know, young corners in in this rookie class are really struggling overall. That's a position with a ton of volatility early. Uh, It's tough to get a round one corner even to be successful in their rookie year. So with Horn, I think culture fit makes sense. Scheme fit makes sense. At 19, I'm not sure athletically he's what you want. But when we look at this corner class, like you said, behind Farley, behind Sertan, right now he's at the top of the conversation for corner three. And so when you're looking at that group, he may be your best option if you want to go corner in round one. I do think it's funny because the Eagles, obviously, in almost every mock draft are 19, 19, 19. It's been the case over the last few weeks. And I think it's just funny because of the the way the division shakes out. The Eagles are either going to be picking at 19 or they're going to be, you know, low teens mm-hmm. high or the high part of the top 10. It's going to be really interesting uh, just to yeah, see ultimately I, uh, how that goes. I did the math, right? Because, like, obviously there's a, there's a trade value chart. That's the equivalent of, like, a middle second-round pick. Like, if you wow. wanted to trade from, like, 19 to 9, that's a middle second-round pick. That could be it for the Eagles winning the division or not, which obviously mm-hmm. as Eagles fans, we'd like them to win the division. But as draft fans, mid-second-round pick, baby. That's, that's <laughs> exactly right. So a really interesting uh, dynamic there. Last question for you, and I'll let you out. Who's a guy over the last few weeks, because we talked to you, I want to say early October, maybe the first week of October. Is there a guy that since then uh, that you've watched that's really kind of caught your eye and say like, man, all right, I got, I got to do a little bit more work uh, on this guy? Yeah, I don't want to be, uh, you know, unoriginal because everybody's talking about him, but I don't care. Zayvon Collins is nuts. Oh, oh he's so cool. He really is. This, yeah, no, this Tulsa linebacker, 6'4", 260. Uh, Jordan Reed with us was just – uh, publishing some clips on his timeline every time I watch him I'm just in my head I think I remember how big he is and then I, I see him I'm like he's bigger than I thought it reminds me of watching Tremaine Edmonds at Virginia Tech where you were just like how is this dude on the field he's humongous uh Collins is is 
curious. I'm not sure how the league's going to view him, where they're going to want him. I think hybrid fronts and, and, and rush packages and your, your heavy blitz-oriented creeper defensive back uh, defensive coordinators, they're going to like Collins more than the Eagles probably will, who just want more kind of traditional linebacker play. But with that said, movement skills at this size – is every defensive coordinator wants that guy because you can do 12 things with him. And, and that allows you to, to conceal tendency, be very versatile, and have him move around. And so uh, there's a lot of reasons to watch Tulsa football. They rank 25 at college football playoff. They're a really fun team. They're going to be in the AAC championship. But if not alone for number 23 on defense, that kid's huge. He moves like crazy. He's a lot of fun to watch. Um, one of the linebackers I forgot to mention when I mentioned all those linebackers. Uh, right, he's rising segment. up there for sure. No, no question. Well, Ben, uh, once again, thanks so much for joining us here on the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Stay safe, stay healthy. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Frank. Go Birds. Now it's time for Pick 6. Well, back again for another round of Pick 6 is my buddy Ross Tucker. Ross, uh, welcome back, man. Don't say that to me until you tell me the results from last <laughs> week. What are the results first? That's what I, I need to know. All right. So uh, you won an over-under. You had uh, you took Wap Fire, the Indiana wide receiver, over-under 49 and a half. He went 56 yards against Ohio State. So you just snuck in there um, by you know six and a half yards uh, to get that win. I, however, uh, took LSU to beat Arkansas, uh, and that got me a W. Um, Demetric Felton far surpassed the over-under I said on 99 and a half. I took the over, you took the under. So all in all, uh, I picked up one game on you, extended my lead to six, uh, out of what is that? The last, uh, 12 weeks of college football. Yeah. So then tell me that first before you ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> I'm not doing good. I'm competitive. I want to win. Let's do this. All right. Well, let's get to the first one. And this one's going to hit close to home. Big 10 matchup here. Straight up. How do you feel about Penn state versus Michigan? Who do you like in this game? Yeah, I'll go Michigan. Uh, A, they're playing at home. B, I think they've kind of found something with this quarterback, uh, Dylan McNamara. And Penn State is a very tough watch. Uh, they've had so many issues. It is – I don't know if I've ever seen anything like this. They just came off the best four-year run probably in school history. I think they had two 11-win seasons, a 10-win season, and a 9-win season. Three of the four years they went to New Year's Six Bowls. They won two of them and lost to Sam Darnold in the Rose Bowl, the other one. I thought this would be their best team, Fran. I yeah. thought this would be the best team in James Franklin's tenure, and it's clearly the worst. Maybe they snap out of it this week. I can't predict that to happen. I'll take the Wolverines. Why do you, th why do you think it, it's been so bad? Why do you think they're 0-5 right now? They lost their best defensive player by far. They lost their best offensive player. Now they lost their second-best offensive player, Journey Brown and Friermuth done for the year now. Mm. And they switched offensive coordinator, defensive line coach, and offensive line coach. But in particular, OC and O-line coach and had no reps with those guys until two-a-days. And then you lose your first two games – and it's like the season's basically over. I mean, for them, it was college football playoff, Big Ten championship, or bust. And I just think it's hard with everything else going on for guys to get motivated when all of their goals are done after the first two games. So Penn State's been a tough watch. Uh, all the things you just said, I completely agree with. That being said, I'm going to take the Nittany Lions here to, take, uh, to overtake Michigan. And, and here's the why. It's the same kind of thinking I had last week with LSU. They hadn't been playing well. They, um, you know, unlike Penn State, they had had like some time off. They missed a couple games due to COVID. 
I just feel like there was a lot of controversy off the field with the athletics department. I just look at Penn State coming in, and I'm like, all right, where's the matchup that they can win this game? And I think if you can get after the quarterback uh, with Michigan, and they, obviously they've had some changes, as you alluded to, you look at Shaka Tony, you look at Jason Owe, I feel like that defensive line is the strength of this team from a talent standpoint right now with who's playing, who's on the field. I'm like, all right, if they can get after this Michigan offensive line, if they can impact the quarterback, not every game has been really, really ugly. So I'm going to take a look at this matchup and say, look, Michigan had to go to a couple overtimes to beat Rutgers. Let's see if Penn State, who's played a couple of some tough opponents, pretty tough. I'm going to look here at at Penn State getting the W. We'll see uh, ultimately how that goes. Let's go to a big one here in the Big 12. Texas against Ohio State. Two teams that have won three straight. Ross, how do you like this one? Texas and Iowa State. Yeah, I was going to say, big difference between Iowa State and Ohio State. A little bit of a different one. That would be a big big matchup too, but Texas versus the Iowa State Cyclones. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to take Texas, and I know they're having an up-and-down year. I still think, though, I mean, every kid for Iowa State would have gone to Texas if Texas offered them a scholarship. Mm. They still have talent. Love the quarterback matchup here. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick Texas to get the win here. I feel like they've righted the ship a little bit. I think so, too. And I, I think you look at Texas and, you know, they've had a couple, a couple tough losses early. Iowa State has actually beaten, I think, all of the common opponents that they've had. You know, Texas lost to Oklahoma. They lost to TCU. Iowa State beat both of those teams earlier this season. But I don't know, man. I just feel like Texas is starting to turn it on at the right time. Uh, I like Joseph Osai in this game uh, to get after Brock Purdy, get after that Iowa State offense. The big thing is, can they stop the run, the Longhorns? Can they stop uh, Brees Hall from getting going? But ultimately, I like Joseph Osai, that Texas defense, getting after Brock Purdy uh, and kind of changing the course of this game. I, I like Sam Ellinger as well and what he can do in this matchup. So I will take the Longhorns as well. So we're on separate sides, Penn State, Michigan, on the same side in Texas, Iowa State. Let's go Pac-12. Let's go West Coast here. Two teams looking for their first win. Who do you like here, Stanford or Cal? Ooh, um, I don't like either one of them, but I'll go with Stanford to win the football game. You said, who do I like? I don't like either one. I'll go with Stanford. I'm still going to trust David Shaw, their recruiting, that coaching staff over Cal rivalry game. I know it hasn't been great for Stanford, but I expect them to get this one done. So I'm going to go the opposite way. And I, and I love David Shaw. I love that program. Uh, I also kind of like what Cal has been building too defensively over the last couple of years. I know they had some turnover coming from 2019 to 2020. Um, they had some guys initially opt out, but then opt back in. I look at Cam Bynum at the cornerback position. And I'm like, all right, let's see uh, what this defense can do. If they can kind of turn, get things going here against the Stanford offense. Um, you know, I know they're still kind of getting things straightened out along the offensive line, which historically has been a strength for that program. Um, Davis Mills back off the COVID list, but not quite. This is the quarterback for Stanford, not quite to the level that I think people were projecting early in the, in the off season. So I'm going to go with this Cal defense uh, to come up and get the win over Stanford. Um, so we'll get the three games in. I'm on one side on two of them. We're on the same side uh, on the other. Let's go now to an over-under. And these, these two were actually really fun. I like doing these. We're going to go to the Iron Bowl. We're going to go to Alabama, Auburn. And that's what's really fun is that even though it seems like we're not all the way in through these schedules and uh, it's, early, it's early in the Pac-12, it's midway through the season in the SEC, it's rivalry, rivalry weekend here in college football. We've got the Iron Bowl. We've got the Civil War. We've got the game. We've got so many big games here this weekend. Iron Bowl, Alabama, Auburn. Over under three and a half passing touchdowns, passing touchdowns for Alabama quarterback Mac Jones 
in this game. What are you taking there over under? Uh, I'm going to go over. I kind of went back and forth on this. I thought under initially because Najee Harris might get some touchdowns down near the goal line. I don't know, man. Alabama's a machine. I'll go over. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of points in this one. I think so, too. I actually am going to go the under as well. This kind of surprised me, Ross, because you, you look at Mac Jones, and you're like, all right, he kind of have seesawed back and forth here. Four touchdowns, two touchdowns, four touchdowns, two touchdowns. So that's why I went with three and a half as the number. But then I look at Auburn, and I'm looking at their box scores. You know they've only allowed more than one passing touchdown once this season, and that was against Felipe Franks in Arkansas. Every other game, Kentucky, Georgia, uh, South Carolina, LSU, Ole Miss, who was, throwing, who was throwing it all over the yard, one touchdown or less in all of those games. So uh, they're doing something right defensively. I know they've got some guys in the front seven. You look at Big Cat Bryant. Uh, you know, I know that they've got a, a couple of players on the defensive side. I have not done studies on the guys in the back seven. I've done K.J. Britt, the middle linebacker. He's not an impact player against the pass. But I'll tell you what, this Auburn defense, they're doing something right. I'm going to take the under, three and a half, a heavy number. He's reached it a couple times here uh, this season, Mac Jones. But I'll, uh, I'll bet on the Auburn defense, and we'll see uh, if they're able to come through for me. So we're separate on opposite sides here. Three of the first four. Let's go to our fifth. Another over-under. This one was another fun one. 79.5 is the number. Does Notre Dame, who has the best run defense in the ACC, allow either of the North Carolina running backs, Michael Carter or Javante Williams, break 79.5 yards rushing as an individual, not as a group, but either of these guys crack 80 yards ultimately in this game. Again, Notre Dame, best run defense in the, in the ACC, only 719 yards allowed on the ground over nine games. That's 2.7 yards per carry. Ultimately, how do you feel about it? So are you taking the over or are you taking the under? I'm going under, and I think part of the problem is that there's two of them and that they split the yards. They're going to be trailing in the game. Notre Dame's going to have the lead. They're going to be throwing it with Sam Howell. I like Notre Dame to hold these guys under the 79 and a half. Oof, I, I went back and forth. And I, I actually, I'm not going to give it away. I, I almost picked North Carolina as my upset special this week, Ross. I, th- I thought about it. I'll I tell you what, I studied. I talked about it earlier this week on the show. I studied these North Carolina backs last week. And I like both guys. You know, you look at Michael Carter, um, you know, he cracked uh, 80 yards in each of the first three games, four of the first five. Only three games all season. He hasn't done it. This North Carolina offense, they're the best rushing attack in the ACC. Uh, Javante Williams, he's gone over 100 yards in five of the last six games. He's averaging either a first down or a touchdown on nearly 50% of his touches. That's from Pro Football Focus. This, uh, I look at this rushing attack between those two guys. I'm going to bet on one of those two cracking the 80. I will take the over uh, on that one. So, this is a big week, Ross. This could go. This could really uh, get you back here uh, into the thick of things, or it's going to really extend my lead. We'll see ultimately how this one goes. Let's wrap it up with our upset special. I'll let you start things off. Who's one big upset you like here uh, this weekend in college football and for a rivalry? How about me doing this two weeks in a row? I'm taking the same team. I'm taking the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. They should have done it against Michigan. Yep. They had it triple overtime. Now they're playing Purdue. I think Rutgers has some good things going on right now. Uh, you know, Purdue did get Rondell Moore back. That was significant. But out of these different options for this week, I like Rutgers to, to pull it off against Purdue. They are knocking on the door. So, yeah, unbelievable that you take Rutgers back-to-back weeks for the upset special. I mean, that's, I can't imagine anybody would have predicted that. Um, I will go to the Big 12. I want to go West Virginia 
over the Oklahoma Sooners. I just watched Bedlam this past week, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. Uh, you know, I watched a lot of Oklahoma early in the year. I'll tell you what, though, this West Virginia defense, they are playing a lot better over the last month. Um, I believe all three of their games, they've held the opponent under 20 points. Um, not something you typically see in the Big 12. I know Bruce Feldman from The Athletic has just recently uh, written about that defense. I'm going to go with guys like Tony Fields, uh, Darius Stills up front on the defensive line. They've got guys at all three levels. I'm going to go Mountaineers over Oklahoma this week, uh, coming away with the W. Uh, that'll be a big win there uh, for Neil Brown and that West Virginia coaching staff. Ross, what do you think here, man? Six games down. Uh, we'll see if uh, you can make up some ground on me this week. Big swing week. Big swing. Potential for a – I'm swinging for the fences on some of these, but I have to. I got to catch up. The season's it's only a few more weeks left. No question. Well, Ross, uh, we'll be sure that we uh, text each other back and forth as these games happen. Thanks so much once again for joining us on the Journey of the Draft podcast. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Yeah, likewise, Fran. Hope you guys enjoyed this week's show here with Ross Tucker, Ben Solak, Ben Fennel. as always. We'll be back next week right here on the Journey of the Draft podcast driven by AAA.